You are listening to Moments of Clarity, Journeys with EQ by Six Seconds Europe. Six Seconds is a global nonprofit dedicated to growing emotional intelligence worldwide. Our work involves supporting individuals, teams, and organizations to develop and practice emotional intelligence to help increase personal and organizational effectiveness. We have a very special guest today with the peace activist Joe Burry, whose father, Sir Anthony Burry, MP, was killed by the IRA in the Brighton Hotel bombing on the 12th of October 1984. That bomb was planted by Patrick McGee, whom Burry publicly met in November 2000 in an effort at achieving reconciliation as envisioned in the wake of the Good Friday Agreement. Joe Burry has dedicated her remarkable life to peace and reconciliation, and through the three moments of clarity she shares with us today, we will see that life-affirming journey she has been on since 1984. Joe, you're very welcome to the podcast. Your name is synonymous with peace and reconciliation. And if we could go into your first moment of clarity, that will become apparent to our listeners. Uh, Well, thank you for having me on your podcast. So my life changed dramatically in 1984 on October the 12th, when my father was killed in a terrorist attack. My father was a Conservative MP and he was attending the annual conference in Brighton. And the IRA said they were responsible. Now, I grew up with the IRA planting bombs in London. I grew up with knowing that there was always that possibility. But I lived in peacetime. I never, ever thought my father would be targeted. And it was a massive shock and appalling trauma, as you can imagine. But it was more than that for me, because I felt from that moment that I am now part of a war and part of a violent conflict. And I couldn't go back to the person I had been. So the clarity was two days later, which is very early on. I was sitting in a church in London, not there as a Christian, just there as a human being, needing to be somewhere that was supportive. And I made a decision. I'm going to find a way to bring something positive out of this. I'm going to try and understand those who killed my father. There's a choice. Do I have an enemy? Do I go for revenge? Or do I bring understanding and empathy? Do I bring peace? Do I bring something positive? And that was the decision I made. And no one no one knew I'd done that. It was very private, very much something deep in me, this commitment I had made. And the reason why it was so important for me is that before the bomb had gone off, I was someone who who meditated, who spent three years living in India who believed in peace, but believed peace was created by inner peace. And I was someone who wanted to believe believe that peace was possible. But of course, the bomb changed that, because now in the real world, meditation isn't going to help. You know, now I know the real world where people get killed. And so it was a new journey that I started. And to be honest, I was not equipped with um, much emotional intelligence. You know, I did not know how to do this, but I trusted somehow I would bring something positive out of this. 
And you must have been surrounded by people at that stage, you know, very angry and, you know, upset. So that must have been very hard to go down that route at that stage. I'm sure there was an atmosphere of anger in the whole country. Well, yes. And, you know, IRA, whether we call them terrorist combatants, you know, I don't mind, but they were they were demonized. You know, um, and there was a lot of anger in the country. Strangely, I've actually met people since then who, who in English people who cheered when it happened, because actually there was also a very strong feeling against Margaret Thatcher, who was the prime minister. And I met people who came from maybe the, some people supporting the miners and who literally um, thought it was a good thing that had happened and cheered. So there was, you know, diverse opinion. But in my world, yeah, there were people who were angry. Not my immediate family. We, we were we were dealing with the bereavement and the sadness and the loss, and no one talked about how it had happened. And the fact that you'd been to India, you know, that you had you'd been learning, you were studying like Gandhi. Do you think that's what gave you that strength? Uh, you're right, it did. It gave me the strength and it gave me the focus. I'd actually written an, an essay um, for a competition on how does Gandhi's ideas of nonviolence have relevance, you know, in London today, and that was in 1980. I've still got the essay, and it's hugely embarrassing, but it, but it, but it shows that you know I was thinking um, about nonviolence. It was really important to me. And then I suppose your your second moment of clarity came in a taxi, which I'm really intrigued by. Yeah, it was just a few months later. Uh, so I was living in London and I was on the tube going home quite late at night. And for some reason, I don't understand why, I decided to leave early. It was almost like I've, I was compelled to. And I'm I'm now in at King's Cross in London, which at that time was not the safest place for a young woman at night. And I thought, I'm going to get a taxi home. There weren't any taxis. So I ended up sharing one with a complete stranger. And I could tell that he... His accent was from Northern Ireland. So I said to him, this is a bit of an odd question, but I'm trying to understand the IRA because my father's just been killed. Can you help me? And he said, oh, that's not odd at all because my brother was in the IRA and he was killed last year by a British soldier. So at that time, we represented different sides of the conflict completely. You know, we could have been enemies, but we weren't. We spoke of a world where... Peace was possible where nobody got killed, nobody nobody demonised each other. And I think there was a sense of we shared humanity in that taxi beyond border, beyond size. And I left that taxi, I thought, I can build a bridge across the divide. And even though no one knows, I know. And that is part of creating something positive. And if I hadn't had that experience, I wouldn't have known that building bridges was something that I could do. And that was in uh, probably December 84. So really, really soon afterwards. And I'm so grateful for that experience. And if I ever met that young man who won't be young anymore, I would like to thank him. But I don't know who he is. And that got you to set up your charity, Building Bridges for Peace, then. That's what led to that. Yes, but I mean, that's way, way ahead. And it, but it actually yeah. led to me writing a poem called Bridges Can Be Built, which was a poem I shared when I 
first met Patrick McGee, and he was the only person who was sentenced for his part in planting the bomb. Okay, and so then when the Good Friday Agreement, your third moment of clarity, when the Good Friday Agreement came about and the prisoners were released, he was released then in 99, I think, wasn't it? Yes. How did you feel when you heard? I didn't hear, I saw it. You know, we weren't prepared. I just turned on the TV and there he was coming out of prison and I was very shocked and I actually felt angry. I thought, it's okay for you, you've got the rest of your life back. My dad can't come back. But then I thought, this is for... This is for peace. This means less children are going to lose parents, less parents are going to lose children. You know, I welcome this. And the idea of meeting him actually had been there for a very, very long time. And it grew over sort of the next year and a half. And it was in November 2000 that I arranged the meeting. And I didn't want to meet him to get an apology I didn't want to tell him he was a that you know he was evil or a monster I wanted to hear his story and put a face to the faceless enemy that he was portrayed in in the press and I wanted to I wanted to see his humanity see him as, as a real person you that um set it up wasn't it it was in Dublin yes it was in Dublin yeah no totally totally my need I had this compelling need to meet him and see, at that point, I knew that I had to follow those, I can't describe it, like a compelling need of something. If I, had, if I felt that, then that was, a, that was part of my recovery. And I knew I had to do it for myself. It wasn't to change him. It was to heal something inside myself. So I went along and I'd actually met other men who'd been in the IRA. And I knew that he would come with a lot of righteousness and political sense of, you know, they had no other choice and he would justify, which he did. He'd started off um, doing that. But I could also see that he was someone who who thought very deeply, who cared for his community and who'd witnessed suffering. Now, I'm never, ever going to think violence resolves anything. That's just my way. But speaking with him, I could see that for him it was a way of response to what he saw happening in his community. And at that moment, I could see he had that compassion and that care. So he's now has his story, has his humanity. You know, he's more than just the man who's killed my father. I'm changing the story. And that's when I thought I'm going to leave now because it's quite hard hearing him justify kill my father because obviously for me, I'm still feeling the effects of that. And that's when he changed. And that was another one of those moments. He's, stopped talking and he looked at me and he said I don't know anymore who I am can I hear your pain can I hear your anger what can I do for you and it was as if he'd taken off his political hat and opened up he'd become vulnerable and what had just been my need to meet him now became his need as he began to be aware that he was guilty of demonising the other in the same way he accused the other of demonising him. And he began to ask questions about my dad. And for the first time, he seen my dad as a human being. And that started off our whole journey together and actually meant a lot to me. There's a lovely phrase that you use called disarming with empathy. And, you know, using empathy for positive change 
And I think that's what drew him in because maybe he was expecting you to be angry and he might have found it easier if you were. The fact that you were showing empathy to him is what disarmed him, I suppose. You're so right. He said that it'd be much easier for him if I had if I had come a bit angry and a bit um a bit kind of like, you know, just telling him he was wrong, then he wouldn't have changed. He would have stayed in a very safe place of of sort of justification. But that he it's his words, he said several times he was disarmed by my empathy. And I think that's to me that's amazing that um that disarmed him. Now I didn't go in there thinking I was going to do that at all. You know, this made me think a lot about how, how do we challenge people and it's been a lot of my life's work since then. You know, we don't change people by telling them think with our finger pointing, you know, you're wrong, you have to change. People change when they feel ready and they change in the way they need to change, not because we we know how they need to change. And then that's that is sustainable change, it's long lasting. And another phrase that you use is the enemy is a real person. And, you know, that, that's so important that you see the person rather than, you know, the philosophy or the fact they're an enemy. It's really important for me. You know, I say an enemy is someone whose story we haven't heard you know, or we haven't imagined. And part of that, I think, is being curious, you know, what, wondering what people's stories are and actually looking back on my life. I was like that as a child. I was always very curious about people's stories and what led them to do things. And I still am. I think I always will be. And it's such an amazing, I I read um, a line where you said that when you were doing this process, there was no help or you were making it up as you go along. You were kind of learning as you were doing this over your meetings and it kind of made me go, you know, is there a, a room for truth and reconciliation commission or, you know, that it's such an important, like personally, you've gotten so much out of it and people see so much um, how reconciliation helps that, you know, there was no sort of um, official help, really. Yes, looking back on it, uh, we were very much on our own and I'm I'm now trained in restorative processes and restorative justice um, and there are ways to support this kind of conversation there are people very skilled in, in facilitating it and a lot of that is about the preparation risk assessment and support afterwards and you know looking back on I did my own risk assessment and I almost facilitated him to to share and to hear the impact of, of what he'd done and so it, it it worked, you know, but there are many, many other ways. And your second part of your question, there are a lot of people who've been working in Northern Ireland about a truth and reconciliation process. You know, there's there's so many almost that have happened. And my my feeling is that there's too many people who haven't shared their story yet. And, and people haven't been heard they haven't had justice on all sides, you know, so something needs to happen. And, you know, I just wish that the politicians here and there, you know, would support some of the initiatives that are there. The work's been done and now it has to be put into place. 
and you've shown that it works. I mean, in emotional intelligence, they what they talk about emotions, they say to name them, to tame them. And, you know, it's the same talking about, um, you know, your story, being able to get it out there. There is healing in that. There's definitely healing in, in restorative processes, you know, if it's done with emotional safety and with support. And, you know, people say to me, would I recommend what I've done? And I say, well, first of all, if you really have that need inside you, then yes, there are ways to for it to happen. But to do it through an organisation that has the resources to give you the support and the preparation, you know, that is the way to do it. Like, don't do it the way I did it, because I think it's, I mean, people do what they need to do, but I would <laughs> recommend some support. But looking back on it, who in 2000 would have taken us on? Because it was a high profile case. You know, Brighton Bomb is, is still talked about. You know, he was a high, high profile um, ex-combatant. And it's so early on in the peace process. And 20 years on, people are more skilled in, in, in understanding restorative process and there's been enough time, you know, people have been out of prison for a long time. You know, it's, I think reconciliation, reconciliation needs to happen, not necessarily in the direct way it's happened to me. That's not always possible. It's not always safe. People don't know who killed their loved ones. But in terms of meeting the other, in terms of cross-community work, you know, there's amazing work being done, amazing work in, in Northern Ireland. And, you know, we don't get to hear that very often in, in the press, but bringing together people from different communities um, and helping them to see each other no longer as an other, but as people to play football with or to dialogue or to cook with or, you know, activities. There is so much happening across community work. Um, so I, I, I am, I'm very optimistic because I know extraordinary people who have been facilitating these conversations in workshops in in groups activities you know for the last 20 more than 20 years now and did you find it like was there difficulties on that road like was there times where you had pushback from people you know that didn't understand why you were doing it was that difficult yeah oh for sure you know there were obstacles inside myself and also um, from my community, I, it has been very challenging for people. And I've been accused of betraying my father. I actually understand that because if we look at the past, you know, the way that I have been responding is different. You know, I, I'm not staying in my own tribe, my community, I'm reaching out. Um, and that's something that is very hard for people to understand. I don't believe that I am betraying my father because I think we're betraying ourselves if we don't heal. You know, this is this is actually about myself. I prefer to be part of a world where we see the humanity in, in everyone and we don't have an other. We don't have a group that represents people who we, who we would demonise. Because I see that happening all over the world. That's what conflict unhealthy conflict to me is is seeing people as less than ourselves and I feel I'd be betraying my heart if I saw anyone in that way so I wake up each morning 
commit committing to seeing humanity in everyone. Now, I don't always. <laughs> I can get on my little righteous stand and, you know, get indignant of and, like anyone, you know, and blame, blame groups of people. Um, but what I want to do is not to blame people, you know, and to work to see people um, in their stories. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't challenge each other, but can we challenge each other in a way which still upholds dignity and respect and gives people the choice to change rather than forcing the change? Exactly. And you um, talk about getting a letter from your father via India. Did you get that letter after he had died or was it around that time and he'd said he understood, you know, he's worried about you being in India, but he understood what you were doing. And to me, that, you know, that resonates even to now, you know. Oh, well, I haven't thought about that letter for years. I need to find it. It's somewhere in a box in my loft. And it actually arrived months and months after he was killed because it had gone to India. And I think the address hadn't been right. And because I'd left India in June and he was killed in the October. So to gone to India and then come back. And I remember when I received the letter, I was like, Oh, I'm, I've heard from dad because it's impossible to know all the time after someone's been killed. I think the knowing happens in stages. So that day there was part of me that still didn't believe it. Um, and it was a big shock. And, of course, that letter meant a lot to me. And his, his words, you know, I treasure. I had some special conversations with him before he died. And those words in that letter also, that he did he did worry. He worried hugely. He worried about all his children. Um, and he did give me that understanding, which was very precious. And he also, like he said, that he understood what you were doing. So to me, it was like, you know, it was like a message, you know. It meant more getting it when you got the letter, the, the message. Yes, well, well, you're right. You're right. And people often ask me, how would my dad feel knowing what I've done? And I think back to that letter and other conversations where he did give me his blessing for who I was, because in some ways I was not a, a conventional Tory MP's daughter, whatever that is. You know, that that's obviously it can be many, many things. Yeah. But I took an unusual route. And that that you know that was that was a challenge to him in in like he had to work hard to understand it, but he did understand it, and he understood it um, having gone to Rwanda and um, Burundi in in about eighty two I think. Um, so he did understand that I was different and that I was motivated by by peace in the same way he was an MP because he believed in peace and he believed in caring for people. And you've been to Rwanda yourself now through this work. Did you go with Patrick to Rwanda together? Or? Yes, yes, yes. And and I, Facebook now is giving me all the reminders because we must have been there in June um, wow. about seven years ago. And it was, oh my goodness, such an incredible experience. I mean, honestly, I am I feel very, very blessed in, in many ways, you know, to be invited to go to Rwanda um, to share my story, to support the the healing that's happening there and to meet the most extraordinary people who have forgiven after losing 45 members of their family. 
I mean, their hearts are massively huge and beautiful. And yeah, it's, it's a complete blessing to go there. And there are many other countries as well that I've, that I've been to. So you've been to um, Lebanon and Israel and Palestine. Yes. They, they must really, you know, seeing reconciliation, it, it must um, resonate with places like that. Do you find that? Both what, your what, stories. Yeah. What, what I find is, so we, we never go anywhere to solve the problem. That's not why we're there. To me, it's part of this idea that humanity is healing together. And if we share our stories, then people can see their own conflicts mirrored back in a different way. And there's not the same triggers. The hardest place for me and Patrick to have spoken is Northern Ireland because of the triggers. But if we go to Palestine, Israel, we go to Rwanda, or I've been to Mexico, I mean, all, all over Europe, Bosnia, it's it's different. Um, and it gives them a chance to reflect on their own journeys and what's happening in them, and also to know what is possible. Um, so obviously Palestine and Israel, it's, it's very complex what's happening there. And uh, I'm very close to this amazing group of bereaved families, um, parent circle, who are Israelis and Palestinians, who've both lost loved ones and they come together and that you know I have like my peace heroes and my peace organizations and like the people there would be those you know if I sort of occasionally as I mentioned the inner obstacles feel like oh what am I doing I I think of them and their absolute commitment to making sure that theirs is a club that no one else is going to join unfortunately um, as we know that a lot more have been able to join it recently you know and but their their empathy their their compassion, them reaching out to the other community and seeing the humanity and speaking out, you know, it's inspirational. And a line that you wrote, which I think is a great line, is say, when you demonise the other, we are delaying the onset of peace. And I think that really sums it up, doesn't it? Well, did I write that? So I don't know where I wrote that, but it's so true. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Isn't no, it? I agree with myself. <laughs> <laughs> it's, well, yeah, because demonisation is what stops us from having peace, you know. And, wh- and what I think, I've been thinking recently, what starts demonization is when we become very attached to being right and then it becomes righteous. And then we feel so right, we're not going to listen to you. Um, we're going to tell you why you're wrong. And that's where I think it starts. Exactly. Compromise is the word, isn't it? That that is the, what is needed. So um, thank you so much. I really appreciate you for telling us our story and your lovely message. You know, your, your line is like, disarming true empathy is such a lovely expression. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed that. We're going to have some great fairy guests every Wednesday from all walks of life. So I would ask you to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and it will jump into your phone on Wednesdays and I would also ask you to leave a review and a star rating if at all possible because it helps other people to find this podcast. I look forward to sharing some great guests with you every week. You are listening to Moments of Clarity Journeys with EQ by Six Seconds Europe.